fair to say, and I don't think anybody here would disagree, that reckless living can put us in desperate situations. Reckless living can put us in desperate situations. Desperate situations can lead to acts of desperation. Now, when we say reckless, what we mean basically are actions taken without regard for self and or others. Reckless. When we spend recklessly, we can end up in debt or filing for bankruptcy. That's when we spend recklessly. If you navigate your relationships recklessly, well, it can lead to a broken heart. Uh, if you are reckless in your eating habits, it can lead to poor health. If you are reckless in your driving, it can lead to an accident. Reckless behavior has consequences. Reckless living can uh, lead to desperation. Luke 15 gives us a wonderful story of this. It's a story that most of you are familiar with. The story of a young man who asks for his inheritance and bolts. And he engages in what the Bible calls prodigal, reckless living. You remember the story, right? How the story unfolds. It, it starts out with desperation. What's he desperate for at first? He's desperate to take the inheritance, get out from under his dad's roof, and do things his way. That's his first act of desperation. Oh, dad, uh, since you're not dead, can I please have my inheritance now? What a wonderful sentiment for a son. And so, you know, because you're not dead, I would like the inheritance because I don't want to live under your roof. I want what you have to offer, but I don't want you. That's an act of desperation, and that's just truth, folks. What happens is this, is that with reckless, prodigal living, he loses everything, and he finds himself desperate again. A famine hits. He's got no job, and now here you have this nice Jewish boy taking a job from a pig farmer in the parable, which is about as low as you can go, and he finds himself desperate. So much so that the passage, if you're familiar with it, says that there's a point where he's looking at the pigs and what they're eating, and he's envying them. That's desperate. When you're looking at the pigs and you're envying what they're eating, it's a desperate situation. The story tells us this. When he comes to his senses, so to come to your senses, what does that mean? That means you done lost your mind, right? means you lost your mind. So now when he came to his senses, Hey, in dad's house, even the lowest servants have it better than what I have. And so he gets up and he makes a decision to go home. It's a story about desperation. Make no mistake. And an act of humility that brings him home saying, hey, I can't do this. Whenever we have spent our energy and our efforts and our time and our talents and our treasures apart from the author of life, whenever we do that, it's kind of like getting lost. And the more you make decisions apart from God, here's what happens, the more you get further and further into the wilderness. And what happens when you get, when you get lost more, what happens is you get afraid. You start to get desperate. And those desperate times, they call for desperate measures. If you've ever gotten lost and you've had that feeling, like when I, when I was a kid, I, I kind of remember this. Whenever I'd be in the uh, store with my parents, it was like when I would wander away from them, I lo I'd lose sight of them and I would get afraid. 
But then what would happen is, is that as I would go further, I didn't know if I was going in the right direction or if I was going in the wrong direction. So the further you go and the longer you're away from them, now what would happen is, I'm not just afraid, now I'm starting to panic. And that's why our last name is Panico. Um, no, I'm, that's not how we got the last name, but that's what it means. <laughs> but the, you, So you know the feeling. And so for us, we deal in our society with, we deal with fear. We deal with anxiety. We deal with depression. Why? Because sometimes we get so far away from God's will for our lives that we become desperate. Being desperate means is that you are without hope. That's what being desperate means. All right? Now, when we're desperate, acts of desperation, they bring us in one of two directions. All right? So if desperation was like a car, it's going in one of two directions. It's going either toward God now, your desperation has brought you toward God, or it's bringing you away from God. So your desperation is leading you into one of two areas. And what you know is this, is that as you get further and further from God, you're getting harder and harder. And when you hear the truth and somebody tries to bring you in the right direction and you reject it, your heart is hardening. Your heart is hardening and you're feeling... And maybe you've had these moments where it's like you know you were far from God and you couldn't feel His presence. Even got to the point where some of you would wondered, I wonder if I'm even saved. Because I feel so far from Him at this moment. And that's what we call quenching the Spirit. But for those that finally turn to God in their moment of desperation, you realized this. You realize, as the title of our message is today, that desperation can be a gift. It's a gift of desperation. And we'll turn, we'll, we'll talk about how that works out today. But despair. It's the loss of hope. And desperation, when you define it, it says when loss of hope or losing hope can produce an urgency leading to what the world might consider reckless behavior. That's desperation. There are overt acts of desperation that cause injury to ourselves that we do or injury to our own bodies, abusing our own bodies. But do you know this? Do you know that as a Christian, some people might at times consider you to be desperate and reckless? Why? If you abandon the things of this world, if you set your mind on the things of heaven, sometimes you're going to make a choice that the rest of the world is going to look at and they're going to say, what are they doing? What are they doing? And that can seem like an act of desperation when you're abandoning the things of the world because you know that you were created for the things of heaven. So we have to understand what desperation is. Desperation is when those, that loss of hope leads us to acts of urgency that might not make sense to the world. Now, if we can understand that, we're going to understand where we start off in chapter 14, the first two verses. Let's go through them again real quick. After two days, it was the Passover, the feast of the unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Stop right there. Let's consider this for a moment. Why are they so upset now? Before they were just trying to discredit him. Before they were trying to trap him in his teachings and trip him up. They were doing that so because if they could discredit him, they could elevate themselves. But now things have been taken to a whole nother level. Why? Here's why. Because right before this, Jesus made a move that he knew would be endgame for him. Shortly before this, Jesus resurrected a man from the dead. His name was Lazarus. 
And in resurrecting Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders said, you know what? This is no good. If he has this kind of power, then we have to get rid of him, and this has to end. You see, our desperation, our desperation is a result of our separation from God. And because we're separated from God because of sin, sometimes God can be doing something right in front of you, and you can't see it. These are the religious leaders. These are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. And what they want to do is they want to put him to death for hearing that he could raise the dead. You see, you had a man that was in front of them that could feed multitudes with five loaves and two fish, but they couldn't see it. You had a man in front of them that could heal diseases that nobody else could heal, but they would get upset with him because he did it on the Sabbath. You had a man that could resurrect the dead, and the religious leaders could not stand it. Why? They couldn't stand it because they were being, quote, religious. What is the difference between Religion and relationship. Well, religion is man's attempt to reach God. Let me make this simple for you. You couldn't. A finite person could not reach an infinite God. So an infinite God reached down to people. But religion is man's attempt. And that's why people look at religion and sometimes organized. I love it when people come to me and they say, well, you know what? I, 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 you know, I'm sure your church is nice, but I don't like organized religion. I always tell them the same thing. What is that? We're not all that organized. Just come out and check it out. Come out to a service and hang out with us, all right? Listen, the desperation is the result of separation from God. All right? And the more separated we get, the more apart that we get from the author, the worse that it gets. Have you been desperate for the wrong things? Okay, because there's a God-sized gap in our heart. And because there's this God-sized gap in our heart, we're trying to fill it with all sorts of things. We're trying to fill it with relationships. We're trying to fill it with money. We're trying to fill it with education. We're trying to fill it with all of these things. But because we're separated from God, nothing is satisfying us because we have this like spiritual tapeworm. And so the religious leaders, well, now they're getting desperate in their situation. Okay? So first of all, we have... The desperation is the result of separation from God. That's the uh, result of separation. But we also see that our desperation can influence our situation. How many of you, because of the way that your situation was playing out, you became desperate and so you couldn't see the forest for the trees? Usually this can happen in a relationship. You want something so bad. Oh, I want that promotion so bad that I, I can't see. Uh, I can't see things for what they really are. Our emotions get involved. The situation begins to eclipse, and these are never good signs when our wants become our needs. i got to have it. Be careful. A wise theologian once said it like this, is that the heart is an idol-making factory. If I just had this, if I just had that, and we keep going. What happens is this. For the Christian, it completely takes away your freedom. Please understand that. You were, you, the moment that you went to the cross of Jesus Christ and you said, I was a sinner and I need a Savior, the moment you became His child, He set you free. 
It's a choice to remain in slavery, to let a relationship, to let a job, to let somebody else's attitude or what somebody else says keep you in bondage. That's a personal choice. It's a choice to give away your peace. It's a choice to give away your joy. It's a choice to give away your love. It's a choice to let somebody else control the way that you respond. It's a choice for me the other night coming home on Hillsborough Boulevard. 5.30 in the pouring rain and the traffic is backed up in every direction and everywhere I go, everywhere I go, I'm getting desperate and I'm getting upset and I'm losing my religion and I'm losing my joy. I'm losing my happiness. And so I'm sitting there and I'm doing everything I can. All right, if it means that I've got to get into this lane and just go a little bit further and got to cut off 10 cars, I'll do that and I'll work my way in because I've driven in New York before and I can do that. No! And I'm getting more upset. I'm getting more angry. God's like worship. Like you worship. Worship. Yeah. Why? Because my worship, in that moment of desperation, what I need is that worship. And at that moment, I don't feel like worshiping. Guess what? That's especially when I need to worship. At that moment. When I don't feel like it. How many of you, you've done this where you didn't feel like going to the gym, but after you went, you went and you felt like, yeah, I feel pretty good about this. Right? I feel good about this. Right? So our desperation has a tendency to color the situation. But here's the thing. Our desperation, and you're going to see this with these religious leaders who want to take him by trickery. They want to put him to death. Desperation can lead to destruction. All right? Because the deeper we go, the more desperate we get. The more desperate we get, it is a vicious circle. All right, because when we become desperate for something, you know, somebody once said it like this, desperate times call for desperate measures. Sometimes actions that might seem extreme under normal circumstances are appropriate because of the situation we find ourselves in. Desperate times call for desperate measures. What these guys are going to do here, they're going to plot to put Jesus Christ to death. He's got to go. He's got to go, so we're going to kill him. How many of you in desperate moments made situations that could have led to your complete downfall? Complete downfall, complete destruction. A lot of us. All right, I got a little slide that I'm going to ask uh, Michael to pull up here. And I just saw the slide a couple of years ago, and it kind of um, came into my head when I thought of this message. All right, you got the wolf. Is going after the bird to attack the bird. One of them is about to have a very bad day. All right. So here's here's my guess as to what might have happened. And you know you can come up with your own scenarios. And a lot of people that see this picture do. But here's the scenario. You think you think that the bird was kind of taunting the wolf, taunting the wolf until the wolf finally lost it and said, "I'm going after you," and didn't look at his surroundings. And because of that, well, the bird started to antagonize the wolf. The wolf gets angry, goes after the bird, and the end is most likely there's no coming back from that wolf becoming bird food. Right? Because that's what we do. We let our emotions, we let the situations control us to the point where we can't see and we don't think about what we're doing, and so we're ready to jump. Has anybody ever done that? Alright? So our desperate moments, our acts of desperation can most likely lead to acts of destruction. Listen, somebody can become so addicted to porn it can ruin the relationship that they're in. 
Somebody can become so addicted to things that they're putting in their body. It can damage their lungs. It can damage their heart. It can damage their liver. It can damage all of these things. In Genesis 11, when they build the Tower of Babel, God looks at them. He's not impressed, saying, wow, these people are pretty awesome. He's saying, these people will go to no limit to destroy themselves because they're not looking for me. They're not looking for me. And so... It's pretty compelling when we take a look at these situations and we say, okay, our desperation can lead us to destruction. All right? That really is the essence of any kind of Christian counseling that we ever do, and we've said it before. All right? What you do is you take a look at the problem, desperation. Okay, and now what we do is we go off to the side of the cliff, literally. We go off the side of the cliff and we take a look at where that desperation, that problem can land. And then what we do in church is we kind of come back gently to the Word of God, and then we look at the possibilities for your life. And that's exactly what we're going to see today. So there's nobody in this room that would say, listen, desperation apart from God is not a good thing. It can lead to destruction. 2007, how many of you know who Lisa Nowak is? Nowak, anybody know who Lisa Nowak is? Lisa Nowak is a NASA, a NASA astronaut. 2007, a NASA astronaut. But most people won't remember her as a NASA astronaut who flew on a space shuttle mission. Most will remember her from her drive 900 miles from Houston, Texas to Orlando, Florida to confront a woman who was involved with her lover wearing a diaper. She didn't want to stop the drive, so she drove 900 miles wearing a diaper, and this is how desperate she was leading to her destruction demise. What is she remembered for now? In memoriam, Lisa Nowak is going to be remembered for being, oh yeah, you're that, you're that, even when she gets out of prison. You're going to be, you know, you're not that NASA astronaut. You're going to be remembered for being that woman that drove 900 miles in a diaper because you were jealous. Think about it. Acts of destruction. Now listen, I want to be Really careful talk about our desperation and where these things can lead. I want to make sure we understand something. That a lot of the things that I've mentioned can be good. Romantic relationships and the pursuit thereof, these can be a good thing. But when they're taken out of context, they can become unhealthy and lead you to desperate situations. Eating is a good thing. But when it's taken out of context, and when we forget why we were, why we were created, it can lead to unhealthy things. Sex is a good thing. It is a gift from God. Taken out of context, it can become a dangerous thing. We know this. So, we need a way back. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about desperation, it's a result of separation. It can color the way we look at a situation. It can lead to destruction. And if man continues on the path that they're on without God's intervention, then what happens is this. We're in a pretty hopeless situation and everything is desperate. So God did something to change everything. This is where God intervenes. And God intervenes by sending His Son to live as a man sinless, 
and to die on a cross. To be tempted in every way, yet to be sinless in the whole process. And so you have this God, again, you have the infinite reaching down into the finite to touch it, becoming one of us. Now, this was an idea that was ridiculed. The Greeks thought, oh, you Christians, that's foolishness, that God would lower himself to become a man. But that's exactly what God did. And sometimes it might seem ridiculous to us, this kind of love. It might even seem reckless. Recently, a song came out by a man named Corey Asbury called Reckless Love. You know the lyrics, right? Oh, the over... And please correct me if I'm wrong on the lyrics. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. How it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. People struggled with this song when it came out. Who's saying that God is reckless? The theologians looked and they said, God isn't reckless. That is not a term that we would use to describe God. But I think that they should be humbled by Corey Asbury's response to this, why he used this term, because it was a reckless love that pursued us. And the way that he says it, he says, when I use the phrase, and I'm quoting him here from one of his concerts, when I use the phrase, the reckless love of God, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is in many regards quite so. His love bankrupted heaven for you. His love doesn't consider himself first. His love isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself out there. He simply gives himself away on the off chance that one of us might look back at him and offer ourselves in return. The recklessness of his love is seen most clearly in this. It gets him hurt over and over. Make no mistake, our sin pains his heart. Yet he opens up and allows us an in every time. His love saw you when you hated him. When all logic said they'll reject me, he said, I don't care if it kills me, I'm laying my heart on the line. It's without thinking about the consequence of a certain action for us. That's how we look at it. And that's how it could seem to a human. Reckless love. But it's because of that you, having understood what He did on the cross for you, the Bible tells us this, and we've said it so many times because the Bible says it and it's gospel truth, that we love Him because He first loved us. If you understand that act of love, that great act of love that was put out on our behalf on the cross, then what happens is hopefully we become, we start to become desperate for the right thing. We want to be desperate for the right thing, and the right thing is the relationship. And that's what we're really going to see here as we take a look in verse 3. It says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it out on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Stop right there. Who is this? Do you know who this is? No, this is, this is the lady that breaks the flask. This is Lazarus's sister. This is Lazarus's sister, Mary. All right, And whenever you see Mary, and this is going to come into play into what we talk about for the rest of this message, whenever you see Mary, 
She is at the feet of Jesus. It's a great place to be. If things get confused, if things get messed up in your life, the best place to go is back to the feet of Jesus in worship. That's where everything gets put in perspective. It's where everything is made clear. Now, that same act, remember this, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead that has spurred the religious leaders on to an act of desperation to want to kill him, well, now she's become just desperate for him. A very different response. She's become so desperate for Jesus. How desperate are you? People can look at your lives and they can see how desperate you are for Jesus Christ. See, here's what you have to, you have to see, because this is really, really important. Our situations are allowed, they are orchestrated, even ordained by God, to cultivate a desperation for God. There's nothing going on in your life that has gotten past Him. Nothing has gone on in your life that has gotten past Him, and everything is to make us more dependent on Him, more desperate for Him. And even this situation where He raised Lazarus from the dead, Now, this is before he even died on a cross for. We're going to see something in a couple of minutes that I think is going to be very compelling. It's not only her gratitude for what he did because of her brother and raising her brother from the dead. We're going to see some things in Scripture here that are pretty awesome. But let's go back first in verses 3 through 5 where it says, that, you know, here she is, she's there at the house of Simon the leper, and he sat at the table, and she took this alabaster flask. Now, these flasks, well, they were pretty considered to be translucent. They might have looked like a white marble, and they were sealed. So what, whatever was in them, the fragrance couldn't escape unless they were broken. But once they were broken, make no mistake, they were broken. You are not going to be able to put the uh, that very costly uh, perfume fragrance. You are going to be able to put it back once the thing was broken. Once it's broken, it's done. So she's all in, and she's going all out. All right? And this is what you have to understand, that in order for her to make this offering, she's going to have to break something. What is she breaking? Well, this was worth 300 denarii. This is like a year's salary. A lot of people said that it might have been her dowry. And so if it was her dowry, then what is suggested is, is that this act of desperation for the person of Jesus was all in saying, listen, I don't care if it costs me even the possibility of getting married someday. This is who I'm all in for. And this is why I'm down on my knees and down on my feet again. Now, Scripture also tells us in John 12, because Matthew and Mark don't tell us who this is, but John does in John 12. Well, it says here that she anointed his head. It also says that she washed his feet. From head to toe. Now think about this for a second. Alright, from head to toe. Alright, it was common during that day to anoint a king on his head. Just like David. Remember when David was anointed, the oil? Alright, so you were anointing a king with that, but at his feet and taking her hair, unbounding her hair, which a Jewish woman did not do in that culture. She unbound her hair and then, uh, without caring about what anybody is doing, what anybody is thinking, she, in an act of worship and love, washes his feet with her tears from head to toe. This is a full body thing where she is down on her face as an act of love. Wonder what they were thinking. Guess what? 
She didn't care. She didn't care. I don't care what the rest of the world thinks because the rest of the world didn't raise my brother from the dead. For you, maybe it will go like this. I don't care what they think. I don't care. He's the only one that loved me enough to go to a cross for me. He's the only one that loved me enough to do that. He's the only one that could take my sin. So I don't care that this person said this, and I don't care that this person did that, and I don't care what the rest of the world thinks, because I've been given the things that I've been given to in this life by Him. Everything you have has been given by Him, but it also says, the Bible tells us, everything that you have has been given for Him also. Oh, the rest of the disciples. Well, it says here, it says, well, and I want to clarify that. The disciples said here, somebody said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Who said that? Judas. All right, here's what you got to love about John's gospel. Everybody that every other author doesn't mention, John says, oh, BTW, it was him. All right, the one that cut off the soldiers here, yeah, that was Peter. The one that ran to the grave, that was Peter. When John refers to himself, it's always, well, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But this was Mary, you know what I mean? When John refers to himself, it's always as the disciple Jesus loved. But everybody else gets exposed in John's Gospel. Alright, and now here, this disciple who said, you know what, that fragrant oil was wasted? Listen, because this is kind of cool. And sad, both. John 17 when Jesus is praying for the believers, He says, listen, I've kept all of them except one. The son of perdition. That word for perdition refers to Judas, the son of perdition. It's the same word for waste. Same word for waste. It's kind of interesting, right? The same word. What's wasted? Not her offering. Not her offering, not at all. You know, I, I wrote it down like this, um, that the things that you have have been entrusted temporarily to you so that you can invest in the things of eternity. Everything you have has been entrusted to you temporarily so that you can invest them in the things of eternity. If you see anything that you have, down to the people in your life, to the car that you drive, to the house that you live in, to the clothes on your back, if you see it all apart from that, then you're taking it right out of context. You're taking it out of context because everything that you have, all right, it, it's a cool thing for a parent to say, you know what, I'm going to give my son a couple of bucks to put in the offering box. That's a good thing. All right, here, here's what I'm doing is I'm giving him the money, all right, and I'm saying, okay, go put that in the offering box. And as they get older, what we do is we train them to work for the money. Now put the money that you earned in the offering box. All right, now I'm giving it to you. All right, and it becomes a lesson. Because everything that they have is from God's. Everything. Everything that you have is from God's. It's to be used for an eternal purpose. And that eternal purpose does one of three things. One, it reveals your heart. All right? So the things that you have, that's why the Bible, again, you know, we, it talks about money more than it talks about heaven and hell combined. It's because what you do with what you have reveals who you are and what you believe, right? And so 
You've been given the things that you have for reasons that matter for all of eternity. And what you do with your giftings reveals your heart. My hope is that you look a little something like this. It's 2 Samuel 6. It's the ark being brought from Jerusalem. And now everything that God has promised to to David is coming into fruition. And after being on the run for years from Saul, now the kingdom is coming together. And I want you to look at David's response as the ark is being brought in. It says here in verse 12 of chapter 6, it says, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Listen to verse 14. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Uh, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David uh, made these offerings. Let's skip down to verse 20. It says, Then David returned to bless his household. And Mishal, the daughter of Saul, his wife, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Mishal, Oh, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. Stop right there. I will become even more undignified than this. When was the last time you went leaping and whirling and dancing and singing with everything you had to God? That's the freedom that's been given you. And that's the freedom that the world looks at and they say, what is different about that person? First, they might think you're nuts. That's okay. That's okay. All right? But when was the last time you said, you know what, if you think that I've gone too far, because some people will take a look at you and they'll say, as Christians, you know what, you take this Christianity thing too far. I love it when they tell me that. I love it when they tell me that. Well, listen, Jesus loved me enough to go all the way to a cross for me. I don't remember you loving me like that. He loved me all the way to go to, uh, enough to go to a cross. So how much is too much for him? How much is too much? That's the point of the matter. Because our situation should cultivate desperation for Him. The situation creates a a desperation for Him, and what you do with what you've been given reveals the state of your heart. It reveals your heart. What you do with what you have. So if people are looking at your life with what you're doing, with what you got, is it for Him or is it for you? You've been entrusted with these things temporarily to invest for eternity, because the things that you have reveal what's in your heart but they're also meant for relationship. Everything that you have is meant not only for relationship with one another, but it's meant for relationship with Him. Let me give you a great example of this real quick, and we're going to be wrapping this up, kind of. John 21. You know what? This is the Word of God. We'll wrap it up when we wrap up. Um, John 21. 
This is after he's been resurrected from the dead. And it says here that the disciples, they said, you know what, we're going to go out fishing. Now this is pretty interesting because Jesus looked at them and he said, listen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Right? And now after he's resurrected from the dead, in John 20 we see Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. He breathed the Holy Spirit on them. So what's the first thing that they do in John 21? They go back to what they were doing. Guess how much they caught? Nada. Nada. Alright? They caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore. This is verse 4. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. He said, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And if you're the disciples and you're professional fishermen, you're saying, Say, What? All right, cast it on the other side of the boat. That's not going to make much of a difference. Nevertheless, they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it. The other disciples must have been just very thankful for that alone. And he plunged into the sea. Peter, put your clothes on, man. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Did you catch that? Jesus is on the land, right? He doesn't need their fish. He's already got the fish going over the coals. Alright? So he says, bring some of yours now. Some of the fish that I provided for you. Because there were no fish until I provided them for you. I provided them for you so you could take the fish that I gave you so you could sit down and have a meal with me. What you've been given, you've been given by Him. You've been given for Him because it reveals what's in your heart and He also desires to have relationship with you. Listen, it's so easy to take the good things that happen to us, the blessings that are that are bestowed upon us, it's so easy to take those things, forget about Him, when those are the very things, the more blessed we are, the more compelled we should be to stay on our face and make sure we're in relationship and enjoying that communion with Him. Right? Does that make sense? Last thing, is this. So, so you've been entrusted temporarily to invest for the things of eternity because it reveals your heart. That's an eternal matter. Two, it's meant for relationship. That's an eternal matter. But three, to show the world. Listen, when the disciple, Judas, puts her down for doing this, when the rest of the crowd might be saying, what is this crazy woman doing with her hair? She let her hair down. She looks ridiculous. And she just wasted 300 denarii. Listen to what Jesus says. Let's go back over to Mark 13, uh, 14. And this is where we're going to finish up today. It says, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? Jesus is sticking up for her. Listen, when you do the right thing in Jesus' economy, He's your vindicator. And it might not always be as visible and as tangible as this, but He will always, if you're doing the right thing by Him, He will always do the right thing for you. He says, you let her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a good work for me. 
For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish you may do to them. But me you do not have always. She has done, listen to this, and maybe it's, may it be said of us, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. So if there's one soul out there that needs to be told about Jesus, let, us be, let it be said of us that we used everything that we could because we're only here for a moment and these things last to all of eternity. She has done what she could, but listen to this, it gets better. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Do you think that the disciples understood this? No, obviously. They're going to prove that they don't understand it in a few minutes or in a few chapters. She's anointed my body for burial. Don't you anoint the body after burial? So why is she anointing him? She has an understanding that obviously nobody else has. She's been given an understanding. Why is that? Because she's at his feet. When you see Mary, she's at his feet, worshiping. And perspective is changed when we do that. Now, it's also been well said, and I forget where who told me this and when they told me this, but somebody else pointed out something, is that when the flask is broken and she, he's anointed before his death, well, people in the dying process have a tendency to stink. Not Jesus there was a preparation that was made before him. His death was going to be a fragrant offering to the Father, a sweet-smelling aroma made on your behalf. Made on your behalf. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. As a memorial. I think one of the hardest things to do is when you lose somebody that you care about to not know if they knew the Lord. I don't want that said of me. Don't want that said of you. All right? I think one of the worst things somebody could say, well, he, he might be in heaven, he might not. <laughs> you know? I think that that would be kind of, because whatever he did, he was kind of like lukewarm. But it, but sometimes it's like when you take, even though we're not supposed to judge who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, all right, there's some people that you look at and you know this. So let's just be 100% here. There's some people you look at and they, they take their last breath and you're like, you know, that person's with Jesus. That person loved Jesus. All right. But then there are some people that take their last breath and you're like, well, they're, they're most likely there. And then there are some people who are like, unless they threw a Hail Mary at the end, you know, <laughs> there are those people that you're sitting there and going, I don't know about that one. And one of the hardest things as a pastor, it's one of the first questions I had in seminary, was I asked my teacher, I was like, well, what do you do when you're having to uh, give a word of encouragement at a funeral for somebody that you don't know is with the Lord? And I'll never forget his response. Talk about Jesus. I'm going to hang on to that for a second. Because if you don't know, it's very hard for me to say sometimes, well, they're in a better place. But here's the thing that you don't want to say, because this won't bring a whole lot of comfort to somebody that lost someone. I hope they're in a better place. <laughs> you know, you don't want to do that at a funeral, right? 
Here's the thing. When I take my last breath, and this is where I'm going to correct my professor. Hope he's not watching. All right. If they don't know Jesus, you talk about Jesus. But for those of us that know Jesus, we actually want you to talk about Jesus. At that moment, when you have a room full of people that may believe, may not believe, and heaven and hell is in the balance, you know what? Here's what I want you to be able to say. John loved Jesus with his heart and his soul. I want you to be able to say that. But let's not talk about him too much. I want you to talk about him. All right? Because what this woman has done, it says here, in memoriam, in memorial to what she did. And so you have the story in Matthew and Mark and John of what this woman did in anointing Jesus' body. As we talk about desperation and the things... Glass is laughing because he knows where I'm going. Um, I've got one more video that I want to show you all. Last week it was the Lord of the Rings, right? The Lord of the Rings. Well, this week it's not quite the Rings. It's a scene from Sesame Street. Okay, just 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 go with me on this. Listen, I saw this at three or four years old. And then I showed it to Anthony too, and Anthony was like, you know what? I remember that. I remember. Well, we're about to, huh? Old, yeah. Well, we're about to see. All right, some of you here are going to remember. Some of you here might be too young for, but I never forgot this little skit that they did, BTW, Sesame Street's 50th anniversary. Happy anniversary, Sesame Street. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to play this quick scene, and I think that this scene pretty much wraps up a lot of what we're talking about and what we're desperate for. Roll it. You get the point. I think you do. At each place that he goes, it says it promises Agua, but it doesn't deliver. Well, Matthias noticed, and I didn't. I hadn't even noticed this was that everything that he went to got bigger. All right, every opportunity seemed bigger, and because uh, it did not end up in him getting water, it leads to more disappointment. Ever grateful when we finally find the source and when we finally get the water, because the Bible says something like this. John 7.37.38 says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water. Agua. What are you desperate for, gang? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just love you and we thank you and we pray uh, to be ever desperate for you. Um, the world is full of promises. It promises advancement. It promises promotion. It promises satisfaction. It promises significance. But all of these things are to be found in one source. The bread of life. The living water. Your scripture said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So right now, Father, I just pray uh, over everyone here that if we've been desperate for anything more than you, that your love would quickly, efficiently eclipse it. And that we would grow in our desire to worship you and let others know about you. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.